Dakota St. Clair, and I'm joined by my two fabulous co-hosts. Minyazov with Vince Vance. I... You know what? From now on, you go first. And then you will... <laughs> it's, every time, it's like, we're playing Mario Kart, they throw the turtle shell at you, and you're just like, ah! You know, like... I mean, I can it's just unbelievable. say my, It's mostly just because I'm shocked every time. I'm, uh, but you don't have... Your name isn't like John Smith. Like, it's not like you can just reflexively do it. It takes a little bit of effort. I have to remember what my name is first. Yeah. Because right. it's long as fuck. A lot of syllables. It's a lot so of long. sounds. Oh, my, my God. My name is Daphne Malfitano, and I'm also one of the people on this. Welcoming to the stage, Daphne's Pizza Pasta. Yep, Pizza Pasta. Daphne. So... <laughs> Um, so yeah, so this is another one of our God episodes, and we are so excited because we're tackling, uh, nope, never mind, not the last one. We are tackling another one of the Elder Olympian goddesses. After this, all we have left is Demeter, but today, come and gather round and get warm around the fire, because it's time to hang out with the hearth with Hestia! <laughs> this is like, we're, why are we at a festival all of a sudden? Someone, because someone's doing like like, like roasting marshmallows or something. People are just getting like drunk. It's a whole thing, singing songs. Because that's a lot more interesting than what it would have been, which is like an NPR show with a sad violin and somebody yeah. like quietly nibbing. You know? Or like a PBS, quietly Mr. Rogers. Quietly knitting. You know, that is like, so the energy. That is. Just the clickety-clack of the needle and like a soft yeah I was just thinking yeah, of, hmm, no. just an occasional hmm. <laughs> um, yeah I mean you know I'm going to tell you guys right now I have a hell of an episode lined up for us but um, we're not going to talk that much about Hestia because oh. there's, <laughs> wow. there's this just is not like, that wow. you are shafting Hestia so hard right now I'm not welcome I'm not. to the Hestia episode where we will not be talking about Hestia it's going to be we're, great but we're not going to talk about we're going to try she'll be over there hanging out by the fire and we she will do other stuff it's what she wants it's what she asked for it's you fine. know what she doesn't want to get involved she, really. She's been through a lot, and she decided she wanted to sit it out for she's most of everything. Cozy. So the she's, smartest. She's gonna sit out this episode too. Um, <laughs> so um, Hestia is the eldest daughter of Cronus and Rhea. So remember, we kind of talked about this with Hera, where like there's one account where it's like, oh, Hera is the eldest. No, Hestia is the eldest daughter of Cronus and Rhea. She was also the last to emerge from Cronus's gut. So it's often said that she is both the eldest and the youngest. Yes. Of the Olympic gods. And so... Their birth that, story is just a train wreck. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, it's so It's strange. wild. And then every single one of them, of the six, every time, or of the five that were in the stomach, every time we get to their episode, it's like, yes, but there's this alternate telling which puts them at uh, in this special circumstance. Do you know yeah. any, you know? like, do you know any twins? Like, you know when you know twins, they're just forever citing who came out first? It's like, they're two who minutes came out older. 17 seconds, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
I feel like this with if you ever hung out with these siblings, it would be like the worst. Oh just God. like a nonstop yeah. argument yes. about like who's actually the oldest, who's actually but like what doesn't count. Well, you weren't raised by a goat, so you don't understand. Like you were I was in there the longest. Like it's just <laughs> like total shit show. This is why they can't have family reunions. If Do you think that the, the gods gaslight each other oh, when they're like 100%. you did this and it's like, well in this version of the myth I didn't. Oh, like Simon is like, alternate. No, 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 no! I was there. I was you there. You did it. They're like, well, according but, to this one, I was hanging out in Egypt. That's so, not what yeah. these people say. Um, yeah. And Hermes absolutely said. facilitates. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It would be Hermes. He just reminds them. He reminds them every time they cite something. He yeah. Goes, well, yeah. actually, you know, these other people think this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. According to <laughs> this Hermes human is probably writer. the one telling the other people the different version of this. Yes. Story yes. In the yes. First place. Exactly. <laughs> Spreading lies and rumors. That's also, it. if if I during if I'm there during the birth and I see one come out and then I turn around to like sneeze or something and I turn back around and the other one is there, it doesn't matter. Both of you came out at the same time. They all were born at the same time. It's like with twins being like, I'm two minutes older. It's like, you're not well, older. You're the same Remember age. that this entire thing is only a thing because of Zeus. Yeah. Right. Because Zeus is like, well, you guys were born the second time after me, so I'm the eldest I'm the of the oldest, gods. So I win. I'm your dad now. And it's like, no, no, not at all. Stop it. What are you doing? You're the demented well, baby. I'm going to have children until that's true. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and until we all get so confused by this birth order thing that, like, everyone just kind of drops it. <laughs> oh, are you saying that maybe Zeus is a little bit like uh, the, ta- the tactics of a former disgraced former president? president? Yeah. Who much would like just spread that. so much misinformation that they would throw up their hands and give up and walk away? <laughs> it does sound very familiar, doesn't it? He, he is a Gemini. So, yeah, I, there's something there of, like, yeah, barrage of bullshit is their special yeah. attack. And everybody just goes, you know what? It's not even worth I it. I just don't want to. Yeah. No. Stop talking, please. So, what's everybody's take on Hestia? I've, been, I've really, I've enjoyed, I don't know if you guys have enjoyed, but I've really enjoyed starting out the episode with, like, okay, here's their birth order, and then go. Like, what's yeah. your initial ideas or, or preconceived notions moving into this episode about who this deity is? Oh, I, yeah. What? Oh. <laughs> Fight to the death. We're very polite on this podcast. I my question is is she like okay, so she's the oldest, but like is she old looking? I know that they don't like the way they present doesn't make any fucking sense. Like yeah. she seems old to me. Like maybe it's just like she doesn't party, like she's a little bit like homebody. Does she seem This is this is essentially how it would have been described. Does she seem matronly to you, like Hera, or does she seem elderly and more like a crone to you? Crone. What's your initial perception? Crone, crone. okay. I don't Vince. think... Yeah. I, I guess, like, for me, it was more matronly, I think. Okay. Because I always thought of her as, like, she's, like, probably... She's just, like, the least terrible to the humans in a lot of ways. And just as, like, yeah, there aren't a lot of stories of her doing anything... So if she was a crone, she'd be evil? No, but I think of I think of her as like more matronly because I think of her like the hearth is active, right? Mm, and I think mm-hmm. about her like moving about the house and like having an effect on like the way that a family kind of stays together under the household. 
Um, and I, when I think of the crone, I think a little bit more solitary, a little bit more like they've done that and moved on. You know, okay. You know what I think of her as a little bit, and I this might be totally. I don't know. I don't know where any of these things come from, which is what, <laughs> I think what makes it interesting. But I, you know, when you like go somewhere in the middle of you're like in some rural place. And you go to, like, an antique store, but it's, like, a really, you know, like, a weird picker antique store. Yeah. And inevitably, by the checkout, there's, like, a, like someone in their 40s or 50s who's, like, checking you out. And then there's, like, an old lady, like, an old yeah. Mennonite <laughs> yeah. lady or something sitting there who's, like, it's not, like, crone, like, you know, yeah, not, she like, doesn't, solitary. She doesn't work there. But she, she doesn't you work can, there, but you she's You know related. she's there every day. She's related yeah. to someone who works there. Like, she might be eating <clears throat> soup. Like, right. like out of one of those little to-go cups. Like, she's just always there. But she knows a lot about the stuff, and she, like, gets excited about what you're buying. You know, she's like, oh, that's a nice quilt. You know, and, and th- she's just, like, a lovely old lady. But you don't really know why she's there. I mean, yeah. it's, but it's very cozy. It's a whole co- – it's a cozy experience. I think if she was – if I associated her more with, like, Earth – I would probably be on that side, but I think because I associated her more with fire, it's hard for me to, like, see her as just kind of, like, sitting down, I guess, as much. Like, I feel like she just is like, I I have shit to do, and I just, this is more important than most of the bullshit you all are up to. Um, And that's proven every day by people needing exactly the thing that I am. Um, <laughs> um, and just kind of being like, nope, uh, if I sweep every day, I don't have to spend three hours sweeping. Um, if I like, you know, just like the type of, I like embodied by the phrase of like cook while you clean or clean while you cook. Just like, <laughs> just but I mean, like, I can see that too. Cause I definitely see her like sweeping, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, but that's, but I still, I see that little Mennonite lady sweeping also. I, I don't know. I don't know where this is coming from, but this is like, it's I love a, it. It's a cute vibe. It's a good vibe. I'm definitely, oh, sure. I'm yeah. really into like Astia being a tiny Mennonite woman in like, <laughs> In my like, TV show of this, like <laughs> yeah, like in like Bucks County or something. It totally you know what in I mean? Bucks like, County. <laughs> it, yeah, absolutely, that is who this is. <laughs> she starts telling you about how her granddaughter makes kettle corn. You know yep. what I mean? Like yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have what we think she looks like, right? What do we think she's in charge of? We all know that she's the hearth, but do you think she's in charge of anything else? I, so inevitably, uh, yes. But <laughs> I know the hearth, and I feel like if Hera's more like specifically marriage but like that or Hestia is more like the family unit or like home um, is it like home? yeah or like home okay. um I feel like doorways to some degree not in the same way that Hecate is kind of like gates but like more like literally the doorpost or something because I feel like that's, that sounds like upper alley and then I can't get away from the idea of some kind of food. Like I keep thinking food also. I also yeah, think, like I was about to say not necessarily the harvest because I feel like that's more closely to Demeter, Demeter but like something yeah. about like the storage of food <laughs> like, or like being able to like keep food in it's your like house. It's like the fulfillment of food or something. Or yeah, like something like, like nourish, yeah. nourishment or something. I don't know. Like sustenance on like a consistent basis, like the consistent use yeah. of your life and almost okay. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> we're going to keep going? Keep going. No, I just think it's funny that we're just making things up. No, I, I, I love it. to hang out with Hestia yeah. and have her make us cookies. I will tell you right now, This I think this is a welcome like reprieve from last week's episode where we're like, yeah. hey, a goddess we all want to hang out yeah. with that we don't find to be like imminently Awful. threatening. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like she's nice. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I have a friend, I have a really good friend who is, of course, from Pennsylvania, uh, whose mom, I'm not going to shout out my friend's moms too much here, but I'm only <laughs> mentioning her because her Instagram handle is, should I even say it? Yeah, you can search these things, but it's she yeah. crochets. And I think that yeah. that's, that's like the most, I think that's the cutest. First of all, I just think it's the cutest Instagram handle. And I only refer to yeah. her as she crochets <laughs> to my friend. But, yes. but like that is giving me strong Hestia vibes. <laughs> I do yes, love so- that. Like referring to someone's own mother with their Instagram handle, which happens to be she crochets is also yeah. sort of an ominous epithet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. She bit. she who weaves. You know, like yeah, it's she, like oh she who crochets. <laughs> I'm very similarly uh I'm friends with I mean, I always feel awkward about referring to my friendship to a set of twins because I like want to distinguish them, but also like I literally yeah, know you all together. It's kinda hard to oh. <laughs> But I'm also I'm friends with a set of twins and they're both like really good it's very like Apollo Artemis in a way that they're like very good at like different things but like Mm. very good at them um and their mom is like this master like knitter crocheter person who has like this huge following on instagram wow Um, and so the only few like the few times i've been to their place um it's like one of them is like cooking something from scratch the other one's like playing baseball sewing an outfit together and the mom is just sitting in a a chair like like Interesting. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of family that you want to stay close with for the apocalypse because yeah. they're going to be able to pull it together really quickly. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they're going to really be able to figure it out. Skills. So, skills. So, Hestia <laughs> is the virgin goddess of the hearth, both mm-hmm. private and municipal hearth, which we'll get oh. to in a second, and the home. She presided over the cooking of bread. And ah, the preparation of the family meal. <laughs> yes, yeah. we knew that. Yeah, there it is. I felt, yeah. yeah, I totally felt that. So there's that sort of like interconnectedness that she represents because she's kind of present in every home, right? Yeah. But also she is the goddess of the flame that is present on any altar through which the sacrifices mm. were consumed. And so a portion of each offering was hers as well. That's sick. That is awesome. And the preparation of sacrificial meat for the community meal was also under her purview. So she's more kind of like cool aunt that didn't have kids. Yeah. Who's just like, I'm about my paper. I set up this dope ass life for me. Everyone's going to show me respect because I just won't be there if they won't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Now, she didn't just rule the home. It was said that Hestia invented the art of building houses. Oh, sick. Awesome. (laughs) The hearth itself you have to remember for these people and for a huge swath of humanity's Mm -hmm. uh, existence was the sacred center of domestic life and so hestia was said to dispense all domestic happiness and blessings interestingly when it comes to building houses and the protection of the hearth hestia was often pictured with hermes as it was said that they shared the role of protecting the works of men uh humanity not just like men yeah. but like yeah. uh like whatever was not this isn't handicrafts because that would be like a faces and athena this is like buildings yeah yeah uh also this is a thing that, it's so interesting because we sort of think about hestia as this like out of the way character who's just kind of there chilling and yeah. so i think in some ways that seems almost diminishing 
even if it's not intended to be. Yeah. Um, because we're all speaking of her affectionately, but do we regard her as like a very powerful goddess or very influential? Well, not only is she like so involved with the underpinning of like life itself when it comes to you know the hearth and what the hearth provides but also all solemn oaths were sworn in her name and the hearth of the home was where asylum seekers would plead for protection from the family that lived there invoking the goddess's name that's cool kind of makes sense yeah. She's very protective. So she's like, more she... the, like, actual side of, like, hospitality. Yes. Zeus yeah. is more just the performance of hospitality. Yeah, I mean, I think Zeus is only yeah. really involved in that it's, like, another excuse to bolt somebody, you know? <laughs> but she does it in a way that creates, like, civic order, yeah. you know? Like, That's now, sick. It's, it's really cool. Towns and cities maintained a public hearth, which was seen as the emblem of the community and of common worship. And it was here that the oaths were sworn by new officials entering office. Diplomats were received at this hearth. And it was from this fire that a flame would be drawn, like on a a hardy branch, and then carried by colonists to the founding of any new town or city so that the new hearth could be ignited using the old hearth. Yeah. Thus connecting a region together as an extended community. That's beautiful. That's so cool. Yeah. Hestia's fire was so sacred that it wasn't just an ill omen for it to go out. It was sacrilege. And it could not be relit using ordinary fire from any other source. One had to use friction or more commonly glass for the magnification of sunlight because the fire of the sun was the only one that was proper enough and pure enough to be able to ignite her hearth. Wow, amazing. Her attributes and iconology are the hearth. This just makes me fall in love with her even more. I love her. The kettle. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) And a flowering branch from the, what's called the chase tree, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And that's of course her sacred tree. And her sacred animals are the donkey and the pig. Her sacrifices consisted of fruit, water, oil, wine, morsels of meals. But her public rituals, the sacrifices, were of cows less than one year old. So then we go on to kind of figure out where did the whole virgin goddess thing come from? Well, there came a time when Apollo and Poseidon both desired to take Hestia as their wife. And a war began to brew between them that threatened the earth itself. Hestia had no interest in either of the gods, and in fact, she had no interest in marriage at all. So she went to Zeus and asked that he would give his blessing for her to remain a virgin goddess forever, and he granted it. There is an alternate version where they both pursue her, and she stands her ground. She doesn't flee, and she swears, quote, on the head of Zeus that she will remain a virgin for life. (laughs) Wow. It was so interesting to me when I first saw, like, oh, her sacred animal. I'm like, pig, easy. I've seen that with other gods. Like, that's their preferred offering. What's the donkey for, though? Because I can't imagine them offering a donkey. Well, so I was thinking it's like she's all kind of ultimately like a goddess of civilization. Mm-hmm. And, like, donkeys as pack, like, one of the most valuable, like, animal husbandry animals you can have because of all the shit they can do as like a beast of burden yeah theoretically how like i think they're like pretty they're like not hard to raise in that way either no um and they're like smaller than some other beasts of burden so they don't require as much food so they're like really really efficient useful yeah no i think it's interesting that um like 
what you were saying makes sense that she can be a, a little bit there's like a little bit of an insulting thing of thinking of her as like this out of the way one of the main guys but like i think i think that part of that is also like positive i mean i she gives me it's obviously she gives like strong peasant vibes and like that's but in a really good way i think and maybe it's just cultural like maybe it's because i'm from cultures where like the strong maternal like you know or just like female elder matriarch matriarch is like a really important figure so to me that's like i get how that could be like diminutive in some way but like i think but it's it's also inherently linked with poverty though and surviving poverty it's yeah yeah that's true and i think it's very in our in our culture of like being italian they're they're very much linked yeah but I still, but I see it as a power for her. Like, and but to me, the donkey oh, then totally, sure. that totally makes sense. It's like you know, exactly what you both said. But it's like it fits in with this sort of like homesteading sort of thing, you know? Yes. Yeah, that self reliance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Which is which again is power, even though it can be seen as a weakness. I think is actually a power. So the donkey was Hestia's sacred animal for two key reasons. First, the donkey was absolutely essential to bakers, as the donkey would pull the millstone, which is what made bread making much more widespread and accessible. But there's actually a second reason, which is a little bit more iconic. (laughs) So apparently one day, Kybele decided to hold a grand feast for all the gods and invited everybody, not just the gods, the satyrs, the nymphs, the nature spirits, everybody, right? The party was massive, and it was going well, and as the night wore on, Hestia had grown tired. She found a secluded glade that was lush, and she laid down for, like, a little disco nap. (laughs) Well, apparently, Priapus had shown up to this party. Uh, Priapus, if you don't know, was a fertility god who protected livestock, fruit plants, and phalluses. So that's what... Well, like, like... from being hit by a baseball, or, like... (laughs) (laughs) if you think that it's shocking that there's a god who's all about dicks he's iconic in his representation because he sports a gigantic permanently erect penis Mm -hmm. and he holds a pair of scales with fruit in one dish and his huge dick laying (laughs) on the other one who is this guy that's why it was confusing because I was like, okay, fruits and flowering things, okay, those are all like Vanek or whatever, mm-hmm. um, or Yannick. There it is. Um, and then you said dicks, and I was like, well, well, <laughs> I've been thrown, we thrown. we remember Priapus today uh, with the usage of the medical term priapism, which you'll recognize from any Viagra commercial, yeah. because it's used to describe an erection which persists beyond four hours and requires medical attention. See your doctor. Yeah. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. And so Priapus was, you know, wandering around looking to stir up, stir up some trouble and comes across the sleeping goddess and basically is about to rape her. When a nearby donkey brayed at him yeah. and woke her up. <laughs> awesome. She cried out and all the gods rushed to her aid, attacking and haranguing Priapus, who barely escaped with his life. Awesome. And his giant balls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine his dick was like a battering ram to get through the crowd. I, yeah, I don't really like, know. Boom, like, just like smashing people. Terrible. I, I'm not talking about like uh, like a big like horse stick either, guys. I'm talking about like if you look up this god, he has a dick that is as long as he is tall. Like, like it's cartoon ridiculous. level. Yeah. It, yeah, cartoon <laughs> level. Um, so that's why donkeys are sacred to Hestia. Donkeys yeah. stop um, rain. 
Yes. And because of this and that brave donkey, Hestia and Artemis are the only Olympian goddesses who have no children attributed to them. There's three virgin goddesses, but as we talked about with the <laughs> crime scene and the piece of wool last week, you know, there are children attributed to yeah. Athena. So next we're going to talk about one of the things I think is wild because I did a deep dive on this and let me tell you something right now. I could not believe what I dug up. We're going to talk about the throne swap with Dionysus. Okay, yes. So here's how the story goes. <laughs> Dionysus ascended to Olympus and Hestia willingly gave up her seat instead sitting in the center of all the thrones tending the sacred hearth of Olympus. Quote, finally, having established his worship throughout the world, Dionysus ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of Zeus as one of the twelve great gods. The self-effacing goddess Hestia resigned her seat at the high table in his favor, glad of any excuse to escape the jealous wranglings of her family, and knowing that she could always count on a quiet welcome in any Greek city which it might please her to visit. Oh my god, I love her. So, who wrote that? Was it Ovid? Was it Pausanias? Was it Pliny the Elder? Who wrote it? Robert Graves in The Greek Myths from 1955. Great. Huh. There is no actual myth which details this story. It is yeah. a modern invention. Wow. Amazing. And that's because the set in stone Dodecatheon, the Council of Twelve Olympian Gods, is a modern invention. In ancient Greece, which again, I cannot stress enough, is not a thing, was not yeah. a united country, and was essentially a disparate scattering of city-states who were more often than not at war with one another, there were countless configurations of 12 prime gods. Uh, and again, it's usually the Athenian view which has been accepted as the quote-unquote official story. In this case, however, we have a relief discovered in Toronto, Italy, which is most likely the source of today's quote-unquote canonical 12 Olympians. The relief dates back to the 1st century BC to the 1st century AD and depicts the 12 Olympians carrying their attributes in procession. From left to right, you have Hestia holding a scepter, Hermes with a winged cap and staff, the Caduceus, Aphrodite, who's veiled, Ares, who has a helmet and a spear, Demeter, who has a scepter and a sheaf of wheat, Hephaestus, who has a staff, Hera, who has a scepter, Poseidon, who has a trident, Athena, who has an owl and a helmet, Zeus, who has a thunderbolt and a staff, Artemis, with a bow and a quiver, and Apollon, or Apollo, with a kithara. No mention of Dionysus. My personal view is that Dionysus is less likely to hold a throne over Hestia as she's one of the six prime elder Olympians and the first born among them. He is, no doubt, an Olympian and an extremely influential one at that, but his present pales in comparison to the goddess who was present in every home in ancient Greece, providing light, warmth, and food for all, while also transcending the home and binding together the larger community. It's important to note that there are dozens of gods that we can consider Olympians who, in fact, also, at least for some period of time, lived on Mount Olympus, but did not have one of the 12 golden thrones. So, what do we think? Yeah, I mean, I so, agree with you. That seems like horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard that there's not actually a myth that details that passing of the throne and whether or not it actually happened. I've also heard that uh, the if that were if that like the the, the impetus for that story, uh, which I didn't know was so recent, so this can't be the case. But the impetus for that story would be because of the some of the changing nature of like the worship of Dionysus, 
um, going from like wine cults and like the for like the foreignness of him coming from up somewhere else, um, and uh, how like early on it was like super not looked well upon, um, and then as like you know wine got more associated with like celebration and like uh, lavishness, uh, that's kind of quote unquote when the scent happens because wine becomes more important. Um, but... Well, that part is. The, the actual ascent to Olympus and his, like, sort of, um, not apotheosis, but the fact that he becomes, like, a fully-fledged Olympian god, that is in myths. He just doesn't yeah. get The throne swap is not. Yeah. And interestingly, what, yeah. the part that this leaves out that I think is actually really important is, I don't know how this is possible because she's supposed to be, like, a flaming corpse, but when Dionysus shows up, he brings his mother, Semele, who's mortal, and oh. demands that she be made a god or he will not be a god at all and the request is granted so that because that makes me think like if it is if it does have something to do with like cultural norms and stuff like that then hestia kind of like what we had just said like being a little bit more so like even in our brains like a little bit more associated with like poverty and like the common folk um replacing her on mount olympus with someone who is kind of about doing whatever the fuck you want yeah like at at least in, in the in a very kind of small way um, makes sense if you're a ruler who wants to kind of have that be sanctioned to some degree. Um, but the simile thing is interesting because, yeah, she's supposed to be dead, which, like, also, same with Dionysus. So maybe he, he's got, right. you know, maybe he's got some stuff that he knows. Well, he he's definitely, he does, <laughs> yes, that is a thing. And we will get into that in his episode because there's several times that, like, <laughs> somebody gets killed in front of him and he's like, oh, Jesus, you tripped and fell. And, like, just does like touches them with like his staff and yeah. they, they just get back up like like it's straight yeah. up it's a thing um it's like party foul bro get yeah up. like it's so it's so like what happened what so so are we ready for our weekly installment of greek versus roman yes absolutely go for it vesta in comparison with Hestia, is a goddess who has many of the same roles, but has an undeniably greater stature, not only beloved by the Romans and deeply revered, but seen as playing one of, if not the most vital roles in ancient Roman religion, politics, and the sovereignty of the state. She was the goddess of the hearth, home, and the family, and she was actually rarely depicted in human form. Instead, she was most often depicted as her sacred hearth fire itself. I love that. Her festival, the Vestalia, was held as one of the most important of all Roman holidays. During its celebrations, mothers would walk barefoot through the city to the goddess's sanctuary, bearing offerings of plentiful foods in exchange for blessings upon them and their families. Vesta's importance cannot be understated. Her worship was one of the last cults of the Republic to the Roman gods following the rise of Christianity, and it didn't decline. It had to be forcibly disbanded by a Christian emperor. Before this, various emperors would lead official revivals and state-sanctioned promotion of her cult to the people of Rome because it was seen as the great tie that binds everyone together. According to Cicero, it was Vesta and the Vestal Virgins who were entirely responsible for Rome's good standing and continued contact with the gods. Out of all the gods of Rome, it was Vesta's temple where the Palladium was housed guarded by the Vestal Virgins. The Palladium, like we mentioned in our M4 episode, was the sacred wooden statue of Pallas Athena, which Aeneas had brought from Troy to the future site of Rome, 
By the way, yes, I'm talking about the statue that Cassandra and then Ajax the Lesser clung to for their lives in last week's episode. Whereas Hestia may or may not have given up her seat on Olympus, among the 12 DE Consentus of ancient Rome, the Council of Twelve, Vesta was at its very core, playing a role in the worship, rituals, and sacrifices of all other gods. She was always depicted as a wise matronly goddess with a steady hand and a clear mind who never got involved with the quarrels of the gods. She was the most chaste, virtuous, and steadfast of the gods. However, she was also the archetypal embodiment of the phallic mother, playing a major role in various fertility cults. She was intimately connected to liminality and the Lehman or threshold, Vince. Nice work, Vince. The threshold was sacred to her as well, the threshold of a door, which is why brides were careful never to step or kick the threshold when crossing it, leading to today's tradition of carrying the bride over the threshold. That's cool. So now we can talk about the Vestal Virgins. Now, you know, when you think about how Hestia is drawn, she's just like kind of a modest matronly woman who is veiled, not covering her face, but, you know, has her hair covered and is just chilling, usually by the fire or she's standing before a fire. And then you have Vesta, who's got a lot more um, like solidity to herself, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is neither one is depicted that often. You know, Hestia is definitely depicted as human. Vesta, more times than not, is just it's depicted just as her fire. hearth fire. Yeah. So <laughs> you have to ask yourself, like, well, how the hell did this goddess become so central if, like, you don't even see her that much in art? And it's like, well, in ancient Rome, at least, you had the Vestal Virgins. You had somebody you could look at, and they're basically the incarnation of Vesta. And so the Vestal Virgins were instituted during the earliest days of ancient Rome. They were one of the very few full-time clergy positions that were possible, and they were a deeply powerful and influential force. They had many roles and many duties, but most importantly, they were the priestesses of Vesta, and they maintained and protected the sacred Ignis Eternum, the eternal flame of Rome's hearth, burning within her round temple in the Roman Forum below the Palatine Hill. The fire was renewed each year on the calends of March using burning mirrors. So the same way that the glass was done, they would do it with mirrors. They can just light it. Yeah. It was truly believed that the hearth fire of Rome was the most important emblem and the clearest indicator of its standing with the gods, especially as Vesta was woven into every part of Roman religion. Anyone could draw fire from the hearth in order to rekindle their hearth fire at home. During imperial times, it was considered to be the hearth fire, not just of Rome, but of the emperor himself and his house. If the Vestals allowed the flame to die out, they would be punished severely, usually by scourging or beating. This is because the fire going out was interpreted to mean that Vesta had retracted her protection of the city and the empire because she had somehow been dishonored. However, even this punishment was carried out in the dark and through a curtain in order to preserve the sacred virgin's modesty. If the fire went out, it had to be relit using a branch from an arbor felix, an auspicious tree, most likely an oak, and water was not allowed in the temple sanctuary any longer than necessary. So how did they actually pick the Vestal Virgins? Well, the priestesses themselves were most often six in number, and they were chosen by lots from prepubescent girls ranging in age from six to ten years old, who must have been considered mentally and physically flawless and without blemish. 
She must have had two living parents and been the daughter of a free-born Roman citizen. The group to be chosen from was usually around 20 in total, hailing from the upper echelons of society, with lots being thrown for choosing the girls by the Pontifex Maximus, the chief high priest of Rome. Originally, the girls had to be of patrician status, but this, like many other things, shifted over time to include plebeians and eventually even common freedmen. However, if a Vestal should die while serving, then replacing her opened up the door to many who would otherwise be totally ineligible. Her replacement need not be a child or even a virgin. Widows and divorcees were eligible to fill the role. The only real guideline being that she should be younger than the one who had passed. But even this was really not always enforced. It wasn't a rule. The replacement was chosen by the chief vessel, and she would make her choice based on who she judged to be the most virtuous. The vestals themselves were led by the Virgo Vestalis Maxima, the chief vestal. She was the sole female member of the the College of Pontiffs, which was the collective body that was made up of the highest-ranking priests in all of Rome, and it was led by the Pontifex Maximus. Each of the Vestals would serve a 30-year term. This was divided into three decades, and each would see her take on a new role. Her first 10 years would be spent as a student, the second as a servant, and the third as a teacher. And during this time, a Vestal would be expected to tend the sacred hearth fire, to collect water from a sacred spring, prepare food to be used in rituals, and care for the sacred objects in the temple sanctuary. They would also make mola salsa, a kind of flour-based preparation. It could only be made during the Vestalia, which was celebrated June 7th to June 15th every year. Her sanctuary, which was only open to the Vestals, was opened to all the mothers of Rome starting on the first day of the festival, and the priestesses engaged in simple ceremonies like the gathering of grain, the baking of salty cakes for offerings, and then the more complex rituals like the crafting of the Mola Salsa, which had to be done perfectly as it was this substance that was used in all public sacrifices. All public sacrifices wow. to the gods, they had to sprinkle mola salsa on the animal before it was killed. On June 9th, a donkey was adorned with garlands and bread and led in a procession in honor of the donkey, her sacred animal, because they kept that story. Because yeah. when I tell you that that's the only fucking myth yeah. <laughs> for Hestia and Vesta, I'm not joking. That is literally the only myth. She's too chill. They're too chill. They're like, they just don't. That's they don't, it. They don't have drama. On the final day of the festival, the temple underwent stringent purification rituals and then would close again for the year to outsiders. Hmm. Aside from the Mola Salsa, the Vestals also had the sole task of preparing the sacred incense for the Perilia, a festival which predated the founding of Rome and was held on April 21st. Its purpose was to purify sheep and their shepherds in honor of the deity Pallas, a divine androgyn of uncertain gender, called by some a goddess, by some a god, and by others a pair of divine twins. As Rome grew more metropolitan and less agrarian, the festival came to be thought of as the birthday of Rome and became even more intensely celebrated. So for the Perilia in its rural form, this is how it would go down. After the sheep pen had been decorated with green branches and a wreath draped on the gate, the remainder of the ceremony took place in sequence. At the first sign of daylight, the shepherd would purify the sheep. He would sweep the pen and then constructing a bonfire of straw, olive branches, laurel, and sulfur. He would start the fire and the noises produced by this burning combination were interpreted as a beneficial omen. Mm. The shepherd would then jump through the flames, dragging his sheep along with him. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sheep are like, I don't want to do this. No. Your um, offerings... weird human shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> offerings of millet, cake, and milk were then presented before Paulus, marking the second segment of the ceremony. And after these offerings, the shepherd would wet his hands with dew from the grass, face the east, and repeat a prayer four times. Such prayers requested Paulus's assistance in freeing the shepherd and his flock from the evils brought about by accidental wrongdoings. For example, trespassing on sacred grounds and removing water from a sacred water source all by accident, just like while moving your herd. The final portion of the, rich, of the rural festival made use of the beverage Baronica, which is a combination of, get this, milk and sapa, which is boiled wine. Mm. After consumption of this beverage, the shepherd would leap through the fire three more times and then bring an end to the ceremony. Now, the urban form of the Perilia, on the other hand, was blended with everything that we just said, the original Perilia, and then got blended with other Roman religious practices, which basically were the Fortisidia and the October Horse. Ovid wrote about this, which is how we know about it, because Ovid actually wrote about how he per he personally participated in the city form of the Perilia, mm -hmm. and describes his experiences in his writings, the Fasti. While the central actions of the royal ceremony carried over, the urban form would add two ingredients, again, from the Fortisidia and the October horse. The Fortisidia was a ritual in which a pregnant cow was sacrificed to the deity Tellus, who is essentially an Etruscan version of, like, the Earth Spirit and has is a dyad with a male and a female side and is a sacred androgen. Um, and this was to promote cattle and field fertility. The unborn calf was then removed from the womb and burnt. The October horse is what it was... It's what they called the right-hand horse of the team that had won a particular chariot race on October 15th of the previous year. Mm. <laughs> they would find that horse, bring it out in front of everybody, and then cut its head off. Bring me that horse. That's so much bureaucratic, like, record keeping. This is the Romans. Gotta keep track of their horses. Yeah. <laughs> Together, the ashes of the unborn calf and the blood from the head of the October horse were mixed by the vestals and added to the burning bean straw of the bonfire. Oh my goodness. They're, um, so yeah, so they were, the thing is, is we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but like they were present at every single major, major festival. You couldn't have it without the Vestals. Mm -hmm. They had a role to play in all of them. And so talking about their duties, it's important to understand that their attire was another of their obligations, almost a duty in and of itself. The Vestals were the image of Roman modesty, draped in white priestly garments, heads covered elaborately. They were the essence of both feminine purity and divinity to the Roman eye. Their garments were a mixture of those worn by brides and those worn by matrons. The covering of their bodies with their garments had as much to do with their inviolable nature, their pious duties, and their sacred chastity as it did with modesty. And the only colors that a vestal would ever wear were white and red. White to denote their and their goddesses' sacred chastity, and the red to denote the sacred hearth fire that they tended. And under their elaborate head coverings, they wore an intricate hairstyle, which was only ever seen on Roman brides. Uh, as for their living arrangement, you could do worse. They lived in the Atrium Vestae, which was a three-story, 50-room palace in the ancient Roman Forum. Just below the Palatine Hill, which was constructed around an elongated atrium with a double pool. 
Wow. To its east stood a statue of Numa Pompilius, the Etruscan king, who was said to have founded the College of the Vestals. There are still remains of the statues of Vestals in the Atrium Vestae that you can see today. So, I mean, I know for me, I really wanted to, like, get into, like, what is this vow of chastity? Like, what's the situation here? Mm -hmm. Tell me the details. So, the Vestal Virgins entering the service, it, it removed from them the duties of the average adult Roman woman, which would be, like, marriage and childbearing. However, they were also bound to absolute chastity for their 30-year term. And that chastity, like the sacred hearth fire, was seen as having an acute effect on the health, wealth, and security of Rome at large. The Vestals were the only women in all of Rome, from slaves to aristocrats, who did not answer to the pater familius, the male head of the household. Becoming a Vestal made them legally emancipated from their father, and they were considered to be the daughters of Rome. Hmm. Now, it's for this very reason that their chastity was to be so ironclad. A sexual relationship with any citizen was considered incest and an act of treason. Whoa. So what happens to a Vestal who breaks her vows? Uh -oh. A little practice called immurement. That's being buried alive. Yeah. In a place called the Campus Gloratus, which is the field of wickedness, oh, in an underground chamber. She could not be harmed. The thing is, we're going to get into this in a little bit, like all like the special things that were attributed to the Vestals, but part of it was they were considered inviolable. You could not harm them in any mm -hmm. way, shape, or form. It was like an instant death penalty. Death. Yeah. And so the thing is, is that she couldn't have her blood spilled, right? So they came up with the solution. They're like, well, we'll just basically like entomb you alive. However, this presented a major problem because as a sign of respect, she was entombed within city limits. But one of the oldest and most important laws of Rome was that no one could be buried within city limits. I love when humans make these problems for themselves. They're like, we've, yeah. we've made too many rules that the rules are overlapping and now we can't do anything we want. That is a quintessentially Roman thing. We're in a trap of our own making. So how did they get around this? They would bury her with a few days of food and water so that technically she was descending into a quote-unquote habitable room. Uh, but just no way to get out. Right. Yikes. The College Gas of the Vestals. Lighting. Which is yeah. even worse because then you would totally eat it because you're fucking starving. But like, Oh, yeah. But like, you know, that's only prolonging this horrible experience. Right. But you wouldn't right. be able, you wouldn't be like, well, fuck it. I don't want to be around any longer. But like, oh, my God, that's even worse. So it's important to note that the, that the College of the Vestals existed for over a thousand years. And during that time, do you want to guess how many convictions there were? Of, Eight. like, breaking the vows of chastity? I, at first I was like, a lot, but then I was like, actually, Romans were pretty about the rules, so I'm gonna say eight. Yeah, but people are horny. Yeah. Ten. Oh, oh, wow. I was close. That Let's isn't go. very many. So, there were only ten convictions for breaking the vows of chastity that were recorded, and just a fun fact, all of them took place during times of great political strife and crisis. <laughs> suggesting that these priestesses were simply being used as scapegoats. Yeah, that doesn't sound legit. <laughs> um, also, less fun fact, if their lover was found, he was publicly whipped to death, and if they had happened to bear a child, the child was thrown into the river. Yeah. That leaves us with the juicy account of Cornelia, the Virgo Maxima of the time, the chief vestal. And the account is written by Pliny the Elder, 
she was condemned to death by Emperor Domitian. However, she was believed by many to be innocent, including Pliny the Elder, who writes of her final act of defiance at her unjust death. Quote, <laughs> when she was led down into the subterranean chamber and her robe had caught and descending, she turned round and gathered it up. And when the executioner offered her his hand, she snatched hers back from it and turned away with disgust, spurning the foul contact from her person, chaste, pure, and holy. And with all the deportment of modest grace, she scrupulously endeavored to perish with propriety and decorum. That sucks. Yeah, that does suck. <laughs> if a man was to touch her, she would be considered polluted. Yeah. And so the fact that she almost fell down these stone steps and this man, like, reached out instinctively to help her, she literally, like, like gathered no. her robes, snatched her hand away, glared at everyone present, and was indicting them by saying, I won't even let him help me if I'm in peril. That's how much you know no man ever touched me. I this did is not. Political. Yeah. 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 That's what I was about to say. It's like, that's not, that's just, like, fucked that's fucked up because you know she's so like fuck, this yeah. is not real like you yeah and i'm still yeah. gonna like i'm gonna take the i'm still gonna do it like i'm gonna die gracefully because it's still all part of my like promise in life but like fuck you <laughs> yeah <laughs> now being accused did not automatically mean a death sentence some vestals were acquitted however other vestals acquitted themselves through surviving ordeals or miracle working yeah girl this is where we get the Vestal Tuccia, who, when accused of violating her vows, cried out to Vesta herself to prove her innocence, snatching a sieve from a nearby market stall and marching out to the river. Does everybody know what a sieve is? Yeah. Yeah, it's like the it's like a colander almost. It's like mesh. Yeah, but flat. So like if you don't yeah. know what a sieve is, if you ever played in a sandbox as a kid, it was that dish that you the had that had holes it. in it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you'd like, you know, whatever, have the Shake same three and you'd have rocks. Right. So she snatches the sieve and marches out to the river. And there in the face of her accusers and the Pontifex Maximus himself, she cried out, O Vesta, if I have always brought pure hands to your secret services, make it so now that with this sieve, I shall be able to draw water from the river Tiber and bring it to your temple. It is said that she whispered a prayer over the sieve, stepped into the river, filled the sieve with water, and then walked all the way back to the temple, amassing a crowd of spectators along the way. By the time she got to the temple, there were hundreds clamoring to see what would happen. She climbed the steps, surrounded on all sides by priests who watched her every move, eyes searching for the slightest drop to fall to the ground, and then, in front of the statue of the goddess herself, Tuccia tipped back the sieve, drank all of its contents down in one shot, throwing the sieve at the feet of her accusers to the thunderous applause of the crowds. The Pontifex Maximus declared her pure, chaste, and acquitted her then and there. That's pretty sick. It should be noted that there was also a handful of tales of, like, immaculate conception by Vesta's own hand, involving some interesting gender fuckery, because apparently Vesta would manifest as a sacred phallus in the hearth flames to a woman gazing at them at the flames, and then they would become instantly pregnant. And apparently this... There's all myths. There's stories about this, and apparently some of the Vestals have happened to as well. And the priestess would then be blessed with a divine child. Wow. 
That last story was like some snake handler, like sideshow shit. You know, the bitch just had like a clogged <laughs> sieve. Like, you know, it was just like covered on clay at the bottom or some shit. Like this was so she had this all planned out. That is like so good. That is so good. That is like some theater. That is fucking theater right there. Like props to yeah. her, to be honest. I love it. The Immaculate Conception thing, actually, I feel like kind of sh- checks out, too, because, like, theoretically, like, the idea of being a, a goddess of, um, like, the home and, like, kind of family, it's like, hey, you don't have a family, you want one? <laughs> like, here you go. <laughs> well, and if you think about, if you think about, like, the home as, like, a womb, yeah, yeah. the hearth fire would be, like, the generative force, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So it kind of makes sense that she would have the ability to like fertilize an egg if she wanted to. Yeah, she's like creating, <laughs> creating family or creating life in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so remember how I told you guys about how like her sacred tree is the chase tree, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so the sacred tree of both Hestia and Vesta was this was the chase tree, which is known as Vedix Agnus Castus, and it produces what's called the chase tree berry. And it's actually a cousin to black pepper that's called white pepper. And it has a plethora of medicinal virtues, the most the most important of which is that it's a natural anaphrodisiac. An aphrodisiac boosts and strengthens the libido, and anaphrodisiac suppresses the libido. Well, I guess it helps if you're a virgin. I mean trying to be a virgin. Yeah. Its medicinal value was attested far and wide, uh, especially by the first century Greek physician Dioscorides, whose Materia Medica literally was used as like the foundation of Western medicine for like 1500 years. There's evidence that the Vestals not only used chase tree berry in their own diet to aid in maintaining their vow of chastity, but that they may have been Rome's earliest iteration of female doctors offering this treatment to others as it seems to have been used to deal with the symptoms of menopause and to regulate menstrual symptoms. Oh. Interesting. The usage of taste tree berries in order to suppress the libido was used by both men and women in ancient Greece and Rome and was later popularly used by monks in the Middle Ages, so much so that it led to its one of its prime folk names, which is monk's pepper. Oh. <laughs> so we know that this priestess, right, she's going to serve for 30 years. So mm-hmm. what happens after that? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I really want to know. So after a Vestal had served her 30 years, she would retire and be replaced by a new inductee. Now, remember how I said there was like six of them? There's a lot more of that, more of them than that. There's like six active ones who serve in the temple every day at any time. Mm -hmm. And then there are the ones who are training to be them and the ones who've already phased out of that because they're in their last decade and they're teaching the ones that are training. So it's only right. the ones in the second decade. That it's are the like middle the decade. Main one. Yeah. Right, right, right. And then there's the one who's like in charge of all of them. And she wouldn't retire. The prime Vesta usually served for life. The longest serving one, I think, served for 56 years. Well, and Whoa. the other ones, though, come in pretty young, right? So like when they yes. retire, they're not that old at all. No. So if you were picked between like six and 10, let's say you were 10, you're going to start actually serving in the temple from 20 to 30. And then you would be there educating all the young girls when you were 30 to 40. And yeah, then you and would then leave at 40. It's not a bad, not a bad like life choice. If Honestly, you don't not fuck all the time, but like, right. That's <laughs> so the thing is, is that she would retire and be replaced. And then after leaving the college of the Vestals, she was eligible to marry most often 
uh, if she desired to marry, she'd be she'd have an arranged marriage by the Pontifex Maximus, and also at the wedding she'd be given away by the Pontifex Maximus, the only man capable of acting as the father of the bride, as he could stand in for Rome itself giving away one of its daughters. Drama. She would be given land and a sizable pension. And marrying a Vestal Virgin who had retired was considered one of the most auspicious blessings that any Roman man could hope for. Yeah, those guys had to be picked based on some pretty high criteria. Like, yeah. They, mu- they must not have picked just like any, like, you know, asshole. So I now want to talk to you about some of the amazing, you could say they're perks. I think they're like powers that the Vestal Virgins had. First, the Vestals were a required presence at the most important public ceremonies. When Wherever the priestesses went, they would be carried in a carpentum, a covered two-wheeled carriage, with a lictor walking in front, heralding their presence, and enforcing their total right of way. Oh, yes. I want that. I want they that. had the right of way over literally anyone else on a Roman street. Damn. <laughs> awesome. They were considered inviolable. Not only did they have an entourage of security guards, but to injure their person in any way was punishable by death. Badass. A Vestal could free any prisoner or slave simply by touching them. Hold. Wow. A person condemned to death was granted immediate clemency just for crossing paths with a Vestal on the way to their execution. Whoa. Vestals were considered to be of faultless character, so all of Rome's major wills, state contracts, and public treaties were entrusted to them as the executor. Julius Caesar's will was carried out by the Vestal Virgins. Wow. They played a key role in in an ancient ritual known as the Argi. Essentially, the Vestals, the Pontiffs, and the Praetors would form a procession which would move through the city, stopping at 27 distinct stations. At each station, they would pick up an argi, which was an effigy crafted from straw, reeds, and rushes in the shape of a man whose hands and feet were bound. And once they had collected all the effigies, the procession was led by the wife of the high priest of Jupiter, who's, and she'd be wearing, like, mourning garments, and she'd lead them to the Pons Sublicius, which was the oldest known bridge in Rome, and it crossed the legendary Tiber River. At the center point of the bridge, they performed some sort of ritual, and the effigies were cast by the Vestals one by one into the rushing waters of the Great River. What is so fascinating to me about this ritual is that by the time of Augustus, no one could remember its purpose. Okay, I was going to ask, like, why are they doing this? Yes. Now, it's believed that it was carried out every year during the Ides of May for one of the following reasons. I'm going to give you what the possible reasons are. But before we do that, let's play a game of what do we think this mysterious ritual is about? So give me your best answer. 27 effigies getting thrown into the river. What do you think it could be? Um, okay, so first, if they're bound, little bound dudes, then it's um, to bait away male horniness away from the vessel Okay. Um, 27 of them is a lot, though. Yeah. And thrown into the Tiber River, specifically on the oldest bridge. It's honestly, there's also some like, hey, uh, I don't know, this Tiber River might, I don't know, just like take stuff to the gods. So, like, take these, like, kind of sacrifices and please don't hurt us. 
Is it like to protect in some way against like, I don't know why they would be like imprisoned, but it was like to prevent Rome, like to keep enemies away in some way, or I don't know. Jesus. So them, the being, them being bound definitely like threw me for a loop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So theory one, the effigies were set up in order to absorb pollution in their surrounding areas and their disposal in the river was a ritual of purification for the city. Okay. That's kind of like male horniness getting. You know. <laughs> <laughs> What's working against this theory though, is that this took place on the Ides of May. And if you don't know this, Februalis, where we get February from, was the month of purification rituals. So, so why is this why being do done halfway through May? Again? Like, yeah. what? Um, you should have a whole year before you have to do this shit again. Like, what are you doing? Next theory. This procession was a pre-imperial rain-making ritual. Hmm. Now, sympathetic magic all over the world using running water to cause rain is a common thing. So mm-hmm. that's definitely a viable thing. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, like, well, why are there 27? I'm like, why are they yeah. bad? Like, what is this? Theory number three. The ritual replaced human sacrifice, which was practiced yeah. by the Greeks living on the shores of the Tiber in pre-Roman times. Damn. It's thought that Arges, A-R-G-I-E-S, the name of the festival and the name for the effigies, could have been drawn from Argivi, which was the Latin word for Argive, A-R-G-I-V-E, which is an ancient ethnonym or term for Greeks. Oh. Ovid states that this is how it all went down, that the practice of human sacrifice was ended by Hercules himself, and that the Romans had never practiced human sacrifice in any capacity, but that they didn't want to end the ritual because it obviously served a purpose, because they're so, yeah. like, traditionally minded. Yeah, that sounds that, that sounds, sounds... that makes a lot of sense. That sounds right. <laughs> the final explanation is this. A second explanation involving the Greeks states that this was a ritual reenactment of the execution of 27 Greek prisoners of war by the Romans. These 27 men were executed by drowning, presumably in the Tiber River. That one is, like, really pat. Like, I'd put that one in the Hollywood movie, but, like, it doesn't sound right to me. It sounds, like, too clean. I think it's the last one. Well, I feel like... It could be, because even that purification thing of, it, like, well, Februaris is the purification month. But, like, if it's that old, like, maybe whoever is associated with that ritual doesn't give a shit about Februaris. Because, right. like, they already have a thing where right. they want, like, the way they want to purify. It's purified. a separate thing. Well, yeah. Februaris, well, so, sorry, I, I misspoke. Februaris is the name of the festival in the month. Februarius is the name of the month. And yeah, both Februarius. of those are drawn from Februus, F-E-B-R-U-U-S, who was the ancient Etruscan god that ruled over purification, purification. rituals. Mm. So it was a pre-Roman thing that had been carried over from the Etruscans. But there was also a lot of other indigenous peoples like the right. Italics and the Sabines and yeah. the Latins. And, you know, there was all these different people. So it could have been... Also, by the way, all of this... One, another additional layer to any of these theories is that it was done to propitiate Tiber himself, the god who was the spirit of the Tiber River. So I could, yeah, so I could see it being um, kind of one of those things where they're paying attention to multiple gods again, like even though the Etruscan purification god has like a whole thing. Um, this particular bridge going over the part of the Tiber and the, the, the how important it is, um, them just, I could see them just being like, no, we should probably just still do the thing. 
Just, just like, just well, yeah, don't I mean, the entire Roman mindset was like, just make sure all your T's are crossed and your do eyes are dotted. Don't things. ask yeah. why. You know, yeah, like, still do the thing. We can't stop doing it even if we don't know what it is because just in case. Right, absolutely. And I, and absolutely. I, and I, Temple to and the I unknown s- god. Yeah. And I could see, like, a rain thing being associated with purification For and sure. also this, like, uh, this Greek thing. Like, I could see them all being kind of connected. It might be all of them. I do love that it is just, like, now... It's like, I don't even care which one it was because it's just great that they're like, we still do it. We don't know yeah. We don't know what's happening. But, like, at some point, like, don't change any of the details because if we change one, that's inevitably the most important one. And right. someone, yeah. right. someone's going to be mad. Like, you do 26 <laughs> little guys instead of 27, we all die. Right, right. It doesn't rain ever again, and we all die. Yeah. Right, and, and now the city's just... on fire. Yeah, and it's not just a river; it's like the Tiber River, <laughs> so right? It's like right. Even more so, just just let's just do the thing. just do the cor- correct <laughs> do the thing. We knew at some point what this meant. <laughs> well, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of the idea of like, well, whoever came before us knew what the, f- what the fuck they were doing, so just do it. Like, just, copy just, them. just keep the traditions because we, it's gotten us this far, so it can't hurt, you know. Like, <laughs> so whatever the purpose of the ritual, it was carried out until the disbandment of the College of the Vestals and the extinguishment of the Sacred Hearth Fire of Vesta by the Christian Emperor Theodosius in 391 A.D. and it had been carried on. Like, before the time of Augustus. The entire time, from Augustus all the way to the end, nobody had any idea what the true origin or the intended purpose of the ritual was, but they faithfully did it every year, which really is one of the most perfect images to reinforce what we know to be the stringent traditionalism of the Romans. Yeah. And now, I want you to just really soak that in, and now think back to our Enforcode and Elogobolus being like, yeah, Jupiter's great, but, like, not in charge anymore. The Romans yeah, are like, sucks. ah! Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Elogobolus showing up and being like, this is boring as fuck. Yeah. What is going on? We need to, uh, to close off now. Right, you. right, right, <laughs> They are right. all having panic attacks. Like, everyone, yes. every, all the older Romans are having fucking panic attacks and plotting probably to kill them since their first day in power. <laughs> I also love the idea of like the vest the Vestal Virgins having like super right away and then Elagopolis like with his comet cart being like I'm just gonna squeeze by excuse me. Yeah, I'm just, pardon, pardon, pardon. I'm just gonna squeeze right by y'all real quick. I gotta I gotta move backwards and look at the sun. This is the, sun. I, I, this is the literal can. sun driving this. <laughs> yeah. Y'all mind if I praise God real quick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like, looks over at the sun and cuts off the Vestal Virgin I cart. seriously can't stop thinking about that image. And just in my head, like, Elagabalus is just like, they're just prancing around ribbon dancing. Totally. <laughs> yeah. For look all at of me. Rome. Look you know at me. Like, and you know if you look away and you don't cheer, like, you're going to be put to death. You get beheaded. You like, so you, yeah. you have to do this. Yeah, if they try to leave the area, like, dead. It's like, are you leaving my party? Yeah. Watch my interpretive dance. (laughs) So, speaking of the extinguishing of the hearth fire of Vesta. um, It's the saddest sentence I've ever heard. Yeah, and when it happened. It was in 391 AD when the fire was extinguished and the Vestals were disbanded that the Christian noblewoman Serena, a niece of Emperor Theodosius, who had done these things, entered the temple of Vesta and snatched the necklace from the statue of the goddess Rhea Silvia, the legendary mother of Romulus and Remus, and supposedly the first Vestal Virgin, and placed it around her own neck. What? Jeez. (laughs) Just, okay, but like, 
just on again survivability right. and self preservation. Right. Like, it's get another necklace. Get yeah, one that looks like it. What are you doing? But like, yeah. you're gonna snatch it off the like what? When she did this, an old woman appeared, wandering and grieving in the abandoned temple. She was the very last of the Vestals, the Virgo Maxima. Her name was Coelia Concordia, and she would not step down for another three years after this. She laid eyes on Serena, witnessing her actions, and cried out a thunderous rebuke, calling down the righteous punishments of all the gods against her for her impiety, her scorn, and her hubris. And it is said that Serena fled in fright, only to be tormented every night with horrifying visions of her own untimely, grisly death, until she was finally driven insane and threw herself from the roof of that same temple. This is why you don't disrespect people. Well, it's also like, that's super... I feel like the gods, when they're like, okay, this is dumb, get out of the way, they smite you. But if they're really pissed, they're like, oh, nightmares, for sure, 100%. Mm-hmm. Forever. <laughs> like, forever. Like, yeah, yeah, nightmares forever. Here comes Hera with a gadfly. Like, all right, yeah. listen, you got shot in the chest. <laughs> like, 100 years dungeon, all of you. <laughs> this story and others like it ran rampant, reaching a fever pitch and prompting St. Augustine to write The City of God in 426 AD in an effort to refute the common claims that the sack of Rome and the fall of the empire was entirely due to the Christian <laughs> to the forced Christianization and its vile abandonment of the old gods who had steadfastly defended Rome for over a thousand years. This is like the extreme version of like the teacher being like, no one talk or it's five more minutes. Five more minutes and it keeps period. going forever. Yeah. And that one kid talks and everyone's like, dude, <gasps> what the fuck? Yeah. And it's like, it wasn't me. <laughs> they think they're funny, but then everyone is like, stop. <laughs> now we don't get, what the fuck? <laughs> You're not fucking funny. It is so real. Oh man, that is, that's dumb. People are just dumb making bad decisions. So many bad decisions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, like now, like just the idea of putting out the fire first, yeah. Like as like a big like, hey, this, like that's my thing. It's like if anything was around for that long, I just probably wouldn't want to mess with it. Leave it like alone. even I was just, I'm just like, you know what? Who? This is like going to the foundation of your house and just shaking the center post because like I want to see what like. Yeah, what? it's like you don't have to believe in it. This doesn't have to be your thing, but just like leave it alone. <laughs> just leave it the fuck alone. Also, because yeah. you don't know. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know. No one does because it hasn't gone out. For the rest of your life until you <laughs> can't take it anymore. Bad, bad news. Christianity in the Empire did not, for the first few centuries, cause the end of the Vestal Virgins. On the contrary, the Vestals, uh, who had been going for over a thousand years, continued to be like beloved and honored by the Roman people. The last high priestess, again, was Coelia Concordia in 384. This was because Theodosius I, the emperor, with a series of decrees, prohibited the maintenance of any pagan worship in 380, and the sacred fire in the Vestal Temple was extinguished in 391. The sacred fire has been out for almost 2,000 years. That is until Sunday, February 28th of this year. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, right. I remember yes. this. They just relit it. 
Mm-hmm. The Gruppo Storico Romano, the Roman historical group, right. worked in uh, tandem with the president of the Rome Cultural Commission capital, Dr. Eleonora Gain. And basically, they worked together earlier this year to do a full historical ritual and relight the sacred fire of Vesta. We gotta go Whoa, see that's it. Cool. We gotta go field trip. But also, that's like foreboding. Because, like, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, on the one hand, I'm like, oh my God, yes. Yeah. And on the other hand, I'm like, uh, uh. <laughs> is somebody keeping an eye on it? Is someone now? like, what's up? Because this isn't just like a historical thing. You guys woke up. The little nice up. old lady. Yep, you woke her and up. <laughs> she's like, okay, cool. What the? Where did everybody just go? You woke me up. What's happening? We get, we get to May and the fucking the uh, the Vatican like falls over. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it just falls to the ground just, in the Temple of Venus. It was built on yeah. under Saint Peter's Basilica. Is just there. <laughs> Ugh, please, dreams, dreams that I have. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's that's our episode, you guys. What do you think? I think uh, we should figure out how to do more equivalencies of lighting the fire again and just being like, hey, I know y'all have been asleep for a while, but, like, whoever was, like, said goodbye, fuck them. Come back and get this shit out let's of get here. It, let's get it going again. <laughs> yeah, like, get this other shit out of here. This is definitely the beginning of a horror movie, though. <laughs> like for sure you like awaken whatever you're like this is gonna be great let's just communicate and nothing yeah can go awake, wrong. awaken the vengeful like goddess God. of the hearth yeah and you'll never you can't escape because she's in every home well and the thing that's so interesting though too about that especially like when you think about it through the horror movie potential is it's always somebody who's like fucking around with some spirit that they think is like Santa Claus, but it's yeah. really Krampus. Really <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally. so they're all like, she's the kindly little old lady who like sits by the hearth. It's like yeah. mm-hmm, two thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Shit's changed. She's been, you she's know, been like really <laughs> angry since then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also the idea of like, you know, we kind of talked about this way earlier in our episodes, but like, uh, kind of. Tartarus being the home of the gods before Olympus, right? Like mm. they just that's just like where they were. So if they like essentially quote unquote tear down, um, not for the Greeks, but for the, or even for the Romans, like if they tear down the like kind of above ground in the sky place for those people and they have to go back down there and they've been down there for all that long, like it's dark and people adapt. <laughs> like all of the things that come from down there are terrifying. Um, and so, like, bringing her back up after all of that, like, I don't know, <laughs> terrifying. Well, no, I mean, it definitely does beg the question, and this is the shit that I, I'm not even exaggerating, keeps me up at night, thinking about forgotten gods, and what 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 actually are you dealing with if you call on What's them again? What's going to happen? Because you know, with yeah. demonology, this is something we talk about. Yeah. You know, in terms of, like, knowing, okay, well, the, the demon... Astaroth is clearly like the lasting vestige of Astarte. Yeah. But if you use that lasting vestige to contact her, what are you getting? Right. Are you getting a her just in her prime, completely untainted? Are you getting her vengeful and wrathful and ignored? Is she diminished? Does she age? Has she decayed? Being forgotten, does that harm a god? Can they die? Is there another spirit that maybe she is gone and has, like, through a usurpation, taken her place and is now answering for I her think, and is I think that speaks, m- a, that speaks a lot to our, uh, like, ego. I think that we sort of assume once we stop speaking to a god, they kind of time capsule as that. 
it's like when we're done with them, they just time capsule permanently as that. So if we come back later, it'll be the same thing. But like, of course, that's not true. That's just like that. That's because we see ourselves as if we interact with them, then they're real. If we don't, then they're not. But it's like, who, who's to say they don't have this entire life away from us for infinite amount of time? Well, that's the thing when you think about, you know, uh, Hellenismos in general, right? Like the both the on one hand, you have the revival and on the other hand, you have the reconstruction of the ancient Greek religion. And you have the same thing with the Roman religion and everything that everyone does is based on these ancient ideas and, and records and practices that we have any evidence for. And it's like, well, how much do we know for a fact that like these gods are exactly who they were right. 2000 years ago, 5000 years ago? And are completely unchanged. Just because we stopped and writing about them for each other, just because we stopped communicating with them, that doesn't mean they stopped evolving. Right. Like maybe they didn't right. just time capsule. Like maybe they like kept maybe they kept living a full life. I mean, that's just like such human that's like such human ego to assume that if we're not well, interacting. Hestia invented or, the you know or Hestia invented the building of houses. Athena invented weaving. And, you know, according to the Romans, also, like, math and numbers and, you know, all kinds of other shit. So it's like, well, clearly they are, in a lot of ways, attributed the spirit of innovation. So it's not as if they – we have – we don't have a ton of evidence that they would be completely static. So are they – are they still around? I don't know. You know, because the thing is, they're a god, and we don't really know what that means. Yeah. Because right. every pantheon defines it differently and defines it differently per god. Mm -hmm. In their own pantheon a lot of the times, right? So do they fade? Do they die um, in certain pantheons? Absolutely. We have plenty of evidence that certain gods die, you know, and don't come back. Um, there is also the departure of the gods. Yeah. I mean, is there any reason to believe that the, the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon would have stuck around for 2,000 years waiting for somebody to fucking figure it out? Or would they or have departed they and been like, yeah. fuck this. These people are ungrateful and horrible and Rome's gone and we're over it. You know what I mean? Like it could, it could be a thing. It could not be. I don't know. You know, and that's sort of where that, that's my shit. That's like where my head is yeah. like 80% of the time I'm thinking about this. And it's what I found so haunting about the opening to American gods, the book mm -hmm. and why it immediately sucked me in. You know, my, if I if I if I was being a hundred percent honest with you guys, and I was like, "Here's what I believe my life's purpose is, and if I could if I could achieve it, I would do it," would be to build <laughs> like a truly huge temple to all the gods ever known, and just have like a small little thing, and there'd be different wings for different areas of the world, and you could go in and you could see all of them lined up, and there would be like people there who were experts on them who could help you go through the process of like making an offer. Yeah, but metaphorically you're whatever. literally doing that with your bookstore because you're giving the knowledge of all of these things and all the forgotten things and the things that might not like have been learned to a bunch of different people who then go out into the world and know or have information whether they like worship or not. Like in in some metaphorical real world way, I feel like you are doing that. Yeah, I'm we trying. Were kinda, we... I mean, it is what has tempted me to try and go to college. Because I didn't go to college. I barely graduated high yeah, school. Same, I didn't go to college. Thing. And so, like, for me, it's like having access to the resources that these people have. Yeah. And all of the people who have the access to the resources would not ever think of believing that these gods are real. Right. And so it's all skewed through that lens and not the lens of somebody who's, like, looking to 
fill in a lot of the gaps that we don't have filled in in terms of what was sacred to this goddess and what was you know what was done to this you know like all of this stuff they're looking at the mystery cults through an anthropological lens i'd be looking at it through a religious lens you know what i'm saying like and so i am very tempted by that um because i can only do what i've taught myself on the internet you know and so there is a lot of things that are unfortunately locked up in academia might as well be for me in the fucking vatican vaults because i don't have any point of access there you know so it is um i think a thing that i really do i find myself moving more and more towards in my life like trying to figure out like how how can i just like join a dig in greece you know like and like be able to rub shoulders with these people and network and figure things out and not have to go to school you should for write it, a book you know you should write a book and then you'll get permission to do stuff like that because it's research for the book that's true that's the way to do it yeah because i was thinking about this we had kind of like talked about this too like the the idea of being the the voice of time and like mm. there being certain kind of folks who are more attuned to being able to tap into some of the stuff and like yeah the idea i don't think there's death other than ones that are like literally described as being dying um i feel like they kind of work themselves into other aspects of life that they originally had purview over anyway and just as we kind of change our context of how we understand life so do they change the context under how they relate to it um and so i think about that in the sense of like yeah like the bookstore and like um which school and things like the the conversations this podcast where it really does kind of again like if the the mind is the generator of reality right it's the ultimate temple and if you can restore the fires there then the physical space comes after at some point but ultimately the mind is is the the place where it's the most important to reestablish it um and so i think about that a lot in my teaching when i'm teaching history is to not teach uh like folks or cultures as backwards or on a continuum as just Mm. having related to life differently um, because if they don't, they didn't need to build houses because they were efficiently working off of land and just that for 6,000 years, that should be regarded as just as cool, right? Like they right. literally didn't need to do these other things. It wasn't that right. they had a harmony set up. And so like um, in thinking about like mythology, it's like these are not just like kind of cool fa- creative stories that tell us a little bit about how their imaginations worked. It's like we should regard that as history just as legitimately as like some of the other forms of history because again there's like that thing where it's like hey did you all know this phenomenon happens and it's like indigenous people like yeah we have a story for that right right Right. so it's like those myths are the same science and the same history to me that's so much of why like people don't on the face of it understand what i mean when i say praying to the saints is ancestor veneration Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you are in so many ways so many of the most popular saints in catholic folk magic are very obviously pre-christian gods and it's the last thing that we have of them and so you're keeping them alive in some way shape or form or at least their stories or some vestige of them and fulfilling or nourishing them i mean obviously on one hand i'm going to agree with you daphne and say like yes it is hubris to say that the gods need us on the other hand knowing what we know about the universe to look at these gods and have them be so focused on like a single group of people says i think something about maybe their nature and that it is a symbiotic relationship well for sure and that the long kind of conjectured rule that might exist that gods get their power from worship and that they diminish if they are forgotten 
I think is a, is a troubling and very real thought that it could happen. And it makes me have a lot more venom in my heart for the Abrahamic religions and the fact that they can't just take over. They have to like eradicate everything that came before them. But it also makes me grieve for a lot of the gods who their people don't exist anymore. Right. Yeah. Their their people, their people's language, their people's religion have been wiped off the face of the map and the face of the earth. Then it's like, well, where would this god go? How could this god even communicate that it's still around yeah. to anyone? Would it have to try and reveal itself to a whole new civilization of people? Is that why we have these random fucking gods all over the place in the Greek pantheon who like yeah, clearly predate the Greeks? Yeah. But then, like, we don't know where they came from. You know, like, that that it gets the mind going of, like, well, how did this happen? And so, of course, yes, you can, you know, be simplistic and, you know, oh, it's all just stories and, you know, whatever's said is just so that they can tell more stories. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. But, like, also there's a reason that, like, mythology, quote-unquote, is intrinsic to human nature. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. And it's how not only we you know try to understand the universe around us and its workings but also how we relate to each other i mean i could talk about this forever it's just it is the thing that like counts it like gets more than anything else i've ever encountered in my life it is the thing that drives me and makes me thirst for more knowledge and gives me the drive and gives me the the ambition to explore and to deep dive and to learn more and learn as much as i can and all of that because I don't know. I just find it to be vitally important. I think it's just all really interesting to try to preserve these things. Like, it is weird to think about, like, where does it go? Where do where do things go when they stop being focused on by us? Like, what does happen? And, and to clarify, I do think, obviously, like, it's at the core of a lot of what I believe in, like, about uh, and of what I do. That, like, obviously, the more attention and, and energy you're giving something, it does gain power. I, so I don't think I don't. I'm not implying that gods just like stay the same when there's nobody worshiping them, but it doesn't mean they cease to exist. They still exist. It might be not in a good way and it might be at a, at a lesser power or, you know, but I think it is really, really interesting to think about. I guess I've never really thought about that so much that like what does happen to all these sort of like forgotten th things, forgotten gods, forgotten yeah. rituals, forgotten, you know? Yeah. I think like hermeticism influences a lot of the way I think about it because I think, as the gods are separate, they are also us, or like mm -hmm. we are kind of like the, you know, if you crack open the geode and all the crystals fly everywhere, right? right. Um, yeah. But, and so I, I think also like about like closed practices or gods who really do respond to a very specific set of people and think about it like family, right? Like you have better love, more love, more capacity to do things for the people in your family, theoretically. Um, and so like, I also look at devotion as just like a higher form of love, right? Like, so like devotion that we hold for the gods has to be kind of abnormal because it takes more energy than like our terrestrial love, right? But it is still love amongst the family. And so I think about like, in terms of, um, you know, what happens when those people get wiped out or the language is wiped out right. and all of those things. It's like the God, yeah, the God might not, um, like it ceased to exist, but like the people that they are able to or want to show love to are not there anymore, right? So right, do yeah. they become these angry, vengeant shades? Do they get relegated to like the things that the people who wipe them out are scared of, right? They become like shadow, exactly. like shadowed versions of these gods because they don't have an a, like they don't have an outlet for the love anymore. 
Um, or does is it maybe not as clean cut as sort of like the binary of good and evil? Not that I'm saying you're reducing it to that, but there's also a lot of evidence, especially in like Western civilization, of taking pre-Christian gods and making them diminutive and therefore harmless. Right. So mm-hmm. the idea of the fae, the and the fairies, yeah. and you know the spirits of place and like you know everything from goblins and hobgoblins yeah, like and brownies to domovoi. Right. And like, we still don't know why a bunch of random stuff just happens when there used to be an explanation for it. But we've long since, like, moved that. It's like, oh, no, that was this other thing that we don't think about anymore because it's dumb. Well, and that's the thing when I was thinking about, like, well, why would they keep doing that ritual? And then I thought, well, the same reason that we have, like, that there is some of us who at least see the some intrinsic value to superstitions. Yeah. Right. Not that we 100% subscribe to the superstitions, but we understand on some level that superstitions happen to be, just like a lot of these saints, the last vestige of a previously fully formed belief system right. and mm-hmm. set of practices and rituals. And now it's just And it's just like core. Ritual, you feel it in, You feel in your core though. Like when you feel the need to like abide by a superstition, it's not like a normally like a thing you like methodically think out. It's like, "Oh shit," right? And you like you just have to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think about like even like uh, kind of like the old kind of traditions and medicines of like things that happen in like the South for black people. Like a lot of those things are just kind of like, again, like now we have the research and ability to kind of look back and find that they are vestiges of things that existed before. Because I, I think the Orishas are like a really good um, kind of a uh, uh, way to expand the, the way to think about this is like a people that were separated from them and yet they still show up. Um, in right. those separated people's lives to a point where they were able to uh, eventually get back to them. Um, and so I think about, like, Jin and stuff like that who, like, might, yeah, very much so still might be around, but, like, the way that they're interpreted is different. Or, like, um, the, again, like, the, the, uh, the not, like, good or evil, but just, like, in terms of, like, even if I'm not evil, if all of my friends died... And then I have to deal with all these people who were the reason they died. Um, and I'm not going to leave my house. This is my house. I was here first. <laughs> so I was here first. So now I guess my, my I guess I have time now. I guess my, my clock is going to be committed to uh, doing other things that I wasn't worried about doing until someone took my job away because now my people are gone. Right. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot of this for me at least is drawn from the fact that I definitely um, identify as what I call like an omnitheist because the thing is, is that like all of everything that we've talked about so far is immediately solved. If you go with like a soft polytheist take, Mm -hmm. which is all the gods are just one God in different, you know, guises and all the goddesses are one goddess and the, you know, different um, incarnations and they're part of just like one divine source. And I'm like, that to me has always felt the most fraudulent possible explanation. Mm. Um, and I can't go near it. It to me makes the most possible sense that in a chaotic universe, all of these gods are real. They're all independent. They're all autonomous. And the vast majority of gods, despite our post Judeo Christian fed, um, worldview, the vast majority of gods don't claim to be the only God. They don't claim to be the creator God. They don't claim to be infallible. They're, they're literally just gods. Like, and it is what it is. And they're all there. And like, I don't think that there's any reason to say like, yes, all these cultures have a love goddess. I guess that means there's only one love goddess. Like, uh, no, it means that every culture would need a love goddess because humans love. Yeah, it's a necessary archetype. (laughs) You know, like. Because it's like saying there's one river God and like, 
like Sobek is so different from like Tiber. <laughs> like, right? right. Like, Absolutely. Like In every different. way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, of course, some of this is also going to like be reducible to animism. Um, of course, the world is full of spirits. And of course, everything around us is alive just as we are. And that if we work hard enough, we can understand it and we can relate to it and even improve our lives by it. It's hard to place exactly where a lot of this um, comes from for me in terms of like the confidence that I have of like, no, I'm almost certain it's this way. Cause mm -hmm. you guys know me well enough to know, like at every single point, I'm always like, yeah, this is how one tradition sees it. This is how another tradition sees it. And I very, I very rarely ever take off like my like educator hat sure. to be like, well, I personally think it's this and you're wrong. Yeah. Like <laughs> I don't do that. You know, I might fight for a point that I think makes more sense over another, but I'm only make, I'm only saying, I think this makes more sense. Not this is right. And this is wrong, right. yeah. you know? And so, but I, I 100% have to say, like, I really do. I am pretty stridently omnitheist. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, why not just be a polytheist? Well, polytheist doesn't mean you believe that all the gods exist. It means you believe in a set Your of gods. Your set of gods, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of examples of polytheisms all over the world that do not believe any other gods exist outside of their own gods. Mm. To a certain extent, you might even see some versions of the ancient Greek pantheon. I was going to say way. the Greeks are like yeah. being like because everyone has their to relate whole thing, to our gods. <laughs> right, their whole thing was like, yeah, of course that's what you know they have that god because that's Zeus when he was in Egypt. Right. And yeah. it's like, well, no, you know what I'm saying? It's also I, I also say all of this like bearing in mind that like I you know and I teach all my students this in which school and any of the spirit work curses that I do. You know, the very first and most fatal mistake that you can make is to is to believe that the world of spirits exists because of its proximity or its accessibility to us as humans. Mm -hmm. The only way that we even care about the spirit world is because we believe we become spirits after we die. That's it. And to think that the spirit world is only populated by us and other spirits that care about humanity means you have no scope of what the universe is. Yeah. Because to think that there's not tons of other spirits that exist in other places and have no idea that we exist, don't care that we exist, or would be actively hostile towards us is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And it's it's that's where the ego comes in for me of like, yes, I because a lot of people approach spirit work for the very first time. And I have to kind of teach them to unlearn that they really do on some level think spirits are inferior to them. Right. Oh. And there's a lot of reasons for that that's in weird. Western history. Yeah. But they're like, yes, spirits should, would be grateful if I approach them, would welcome my approach, mm. would be <laughs> happy to help me. And it's like. Where are you getting that impression that. from? Yeah. <laughs> like, clearly you didn't grow up in a culture that's, like, Slavic and has Baba Yaga. Because, yeah, yeah, like, there's some scary you know ones. what I mean? And, like, and then there's all this, like, stuff that's happened over the internet in the past, like, ten years where people have, like, taken stories like Baba Yaga and tried to soften them for consumption. And it's mm. like, yo, she has iron teeth and will eat you eat as you. soon as she sees oh, you. She you, lives yeah. in the impenetrable depths of the forest where no human can safely go. What about this tells you, like, she's a kind old granny and she did, she's not Hestia. You know what I'm saying? Like, and Hestia will burn your shit down if you fuck with her, too. So, like, I, you know, like, the fact that the, the other people who are interested in this the way that I'm interested in it tend to be this, like, Pokemon, you gotta catch them all kind of attitude is mm. really troubling to me because I'm like, these aren't merit badges. These aren't trading cards. These aren't, you know, like, action figures. They're not superheroes. These are deities who deserve the same accord as any other deity and you know learning about them in their own individual context is one of the most enriching things that you can possibly yeah. do i think that's awesome i think this is all awesome like it's really interesting i never i don't i haven't thought about this in this way 
yeah you know it's not my focus so it's interesting to think about it because it i agree like on a on a you know from a place of history and stories and like societal sort of like similarities and symbolism and everything like it's like these are all unique i i agree that things are all unique and need to be taken differently and like taken for seen seen as whole as whole things not as just like pick and choose like what things we want to see or like how we want to see it and fit it to our own narrative but like you know see everything as equal and different and unique you know well i think also and i this is how i've always operated and it wasn't until very recently that i realized like that's a patently anti-colonial vantage point of course it's the opposite you know what i'm saying because <laughs> like, you're you're literally trying to work to undo yeah. how colonialism attempts to destroy everything and pave over it right Good. like all now these we all gods, agree on this it's like no we right don't. like all these gods were here and then colonialism came through like cut down the whole forest and put a parking lot on top yeah and it's like don't ask what's underneath of this doesn't matter it doesn't exist you know anymore. it's like this is your god now whoa wait a minute what like that's yeah. Mm, so yeah it it i think there is a um I think maybe that's why I've always had such like a, a harsh reaction to soft polytheism because I'm like, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's absolutely like the handmaiden to colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the interpretatio Greca, w- the way that we were talking about how like the Greeks were like, yeah, of course they have this God because it's Zeus when he appeared here. Like it encouraged and emboldened colonialism, yeah. violent colonialism. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, which, like, you know, both of them did it. But, like, I don't know. There's something about the way that the Romans were like, yeah, okay, we'll totally, like, sack your city and enslave you. But, like, we're going to really make sure that your god is okay with us first. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's wild to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and I'm not obviously condoning either one. I just, But I, in terms of sacking people's cities and, you know, colonialism and slavery and all of that. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. It just uh, it it boggles the mind, but I can't keep going back to that well of like thinking about this over and over again, and being like, how could I possibly try and and using my limited human resources and my brief amount of time on this planet, try and dig up as many of these gods as possible polish them off and put them back in a place of pride and leave them for future people to see yeah. and and in their own estimation see if this is a god worth worshiping or acknowledging or holding in a place of honor you know mm. um yeah yeah i think it like the the influence thing is kind of also just as simple as looking at the moon because like the moon affects all of these things about us and like how we relate to the earth but we have no effect on the moon Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's like it's clearly not there for us it was there before we were here and it'll be here after we are gone Um, and while we do interact with it um, it, its significance is not that interaction Hmm. Um, our significance is arguably our interaction with it Um, and so I think like I don't know I I think I I understand the thing against uh, soft polytheism I'm not really even sure where I lie on this because I do just i do think about this like some kind of like i think most of where i lie on it comes from stories um Mm. and like almost all stories have some kind of thing in the beginning that starts everything else 
Um, and if multiple, if you're standing on multiple places on Earth watching the same event, you're going to have different perspectives of how it happened. Right. Now, how the things descend and become their own thing after that absolutely makes sense that they would be um, like in an omnitheist sense, like they're specific, do their own things, um, and have dominion. But I also don't think like the Earth itself is just the Earth itself, right? There's multiple dimensions, multiple blah, blah, blah. Um, so in a way, it's kind of like, I think, for instance, Ra is absolutely a supreme god. Um, and at the same time, all the other supreme gods are also supreme gods. But at the same time, they are all supreme gods. And so at some point came from something, right? Uh, and I don't know what that is. Uh, I'm still trying to kind of figure that out. I fucking um, know it's not ancient aliens. I'll tell you that. Uh, yeah. It's never ancient aliens. <laughs> yeah, no, because it's like, I think also just being like a person trying to trace backwards or like recover or uncover. Um, there's there's mixing that I have to interact with, not even if right. I even if I didn't want to, um, and so that kind of. But at the same time, it kind of opens up the way that I'm thinking about it, because like there's also the idea of like maybe all of the things are true about them, right? The idea that animism teaches us to respond to the earth in a much more sustainable way, uh, yeah. and like the gods represent very like specific uh, kind of like aspects of that relationship with like life itself or or existence itself um or death makes, or death well i think that's part of like death is like in and of itself an existence right um so i like think like if uh like i think that could be true just as much as um like the gods being like no i i, I made the rules uh and <laughs> these are the rules that i set them here and that being absolutely true as well um because I think, like, if we if we give deities the that kind of honor or respect, it's like, how the fuck do we know? Like, <laughs> they do whatever the fuck they want. And maybe they are. Like, they're bigger than the ability. Like, if we can hold the possibility to become, like, go from being, like, in the KKK to, like, trying to organize, like, mutual funds for people, right? If a single human can span that amount of brain distance, why would we limit a god to not being able to kind of exist in multiple myriads of types of ways or have multiple myriads of like existences that source from different places. Mm -hmm. um, and why would we think that we would be able to understand that and could come up with a reasonable conclusion? Um, <laughs> um, other than the ones that, you know, by Gnosis, they tell us. Um, so I don't know. It's a... Uh... It's kind of more of a, it's like, I, I've used this term before, uh, I'm a god simp, uh, which is just like, oh my god. why not just assume they are actually that powerful, and why would I, like, be able to understand that? Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just kind of hand, like, you know, I'm, I'm cool with hanging out in the relationship that I can hang out with, but, like, obviously I'll seek to, to know more, but even, even in that in and of itself is kind of like de devotion. Yeah. Um, well, the thing about that that I think is really interesting is when you look at the difference between deism and theism, right? So, like, deism, you just have, yes, there is a prime mover. There's a creator, right, who is unknowable, ineffable. There's no proof that they have a name, that they're interested in humanity, that they answer prayers, that they judge the dead, that they do any of that. They just created everything and then, like, probably left. Or, you know, if they're <laughs> watching, they don't really care what happens, you know? But then you go to the entire every other explanation ever of a god and you get theism because now you're saying you've made the jump and saying the gods are knowable 
the gods do have names they have dislikes and likes they do intervene in human affairs they care about human affairs mm-hmm. on whatever level in a continuum right and yeah. so i think that's really fascinating to start looking at and thinking about is like where does that exist because like okay yes on the one hand you have like sort of the idea of like a supreme god is in, is inherently ineffable right mm-hmm. but then you have like okay you've got this like super polytheism relatable greek god but if they show their true form you're immolated yeah <laughs> right like so it's like yeah. oh okay this could have, this yeah. could occur on different scales which yeah. is wild you know <laughs> yeah. um but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, it also, I mean, Jesus, it begs the question, what is a god? What qualifies right. someone as a god? And, you know, then you have apotheosis and you have the idea of like, you know, you have all these deities who apparently started out as human, you know? And yeah. it's like, well, if you can do that with a saint, why can't you do that with a god? Like, arguably, right. saints are gods. So maybe that is possible, but then is there a limit to it? And like, how do we know that it's for real? But like... It's wild to me to think about, like, the way I explain it in my spirit work class is I'm like, you know, it's it's a lot more related to witchcraft and magic. And I'm asking, like, where does your magic come from, right? Yeah. It's energy. All energy has a source. So here's some of, like, the common sources. And I'll explain, okay, yes, it could be a deity, right? You could power your spells with a deity's help. But number one... It's if it's if it's all energy and we're pulling energy from somewhere. First of all, what makes them a deity? It's that they have a seemingly limitless pool of energy that you can draw from. Mm-hmm. However, there will be a whole load of terms and conditions you have to abide by for access to right. that pool, right? right? And some of that might be you living in a devotional state and worshiping them, you know, and making them offerings and having taboos and having all of these things. Um, but that, to me, whenever I think about like, well, what makes a god a god? I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Is that they have this like seemingly limitless pool of energy to dis- to dispense from, and that doesn't make them all powerful though. Yeah, it just means they outlast everything we know of as being the universe, which is like the universe is really only sort of like ruled or influenced by some very simple concepts based on observable evidence, which are like destruction, decay, and death. Entropy. Entropy. Also, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but then how do we know that doesn't affect the gods? We, well, don't. I, we don't. I think about it kind of like cells, right? Like if our cells weren't coded to kill themselves, they would just keep reproducing. Mm-hmm. So like what like what if God like even just simply Ew, gods, it's like Resident Evil. Yeah, it's like what if gods just like have the HeLa cell where where they just can they don't have that thing that makes them end. Um hmm. and it's also kind of like, yeah, like how I think about like vampires, right? Like someone who's able or elves really like people who are able like entities that are able to live for so much longer the experience they gather like literally changes their physiognomy right like it's like it's the experience or the the state of existence and one's interaction with it is that like that source right like entropy versus the system um and like maybe gods are the most uh kind of uh resilient yeah resilient thing to entropy but like ultimately everything returns to entropy yeah right um right which is like sick as fuck (laughs) yeah like that they're just on a longer timeline much longer Mm -hmm. that we don't even see it yeah yeah it's possible because like there are civilizations that never saw their like their fall coming but like Right. Theoretically, something that lasted longer might have been like, yeah, that, that was coming. Yeah. You had that coming. <laughs> yeah, like you had that coming. Hmm. 
I do love the idea of cogs just looking at me like I told him. Yeah, it's like Ugh. this is gonna get ugly in a hundred years. This I've is why we don't. Them. This is why we don't eat pigs over here. <laughs> right. This is why we don't eat the pigs. <laughs> so about the episode, I also realized I fucking love Hestia. Yeah. Like so cool. Yeah, Hestia and Vesta, I think, are both just fucking rad. You know. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in for another fabulous episode of When God Was Queer. We had a great time talking about Hestia, Vestia, and all things that are hearthfires and uh, the virgins that keep them. Um, <laughs> none of us would be qualified, no, but, you know, it's fine. Really um, I don't know. You know, it's, maybe we could do, like, the born-again Christian recycled virgin thing. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I've got my promise ring, uh, my purity ring. Purity culture is grooming. Uh, but anyway, so <laughs> thanks again for joining us. And we are so excited to be able to share all of these great stories with you. And we would love to hear from you about what you think. So if you want to get a hold of us, uh, find us on Instagram or TikTok, at When God Was Queer. And if you are interested in uh, asking us any questions or making any suggestions, especially about upcoming episodes and the gods that we're going to be covering, then just shoot us an email at whengodwasqueer at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a voice message. And if it's real nifty, we'll include it in an upcoming episode. Uh, and you can do that at anchor.fm slash when god was queer um but other than that i think it's time for our cacophony of queerness so from us here at when god was queer to you wherever you are we say be gay, be gay do, do crime do crimes. the gods are always watching that's one of the better ones god. that would kind of yeah that was actually that pretty on point worked. okay bye, bye. bye. <laughs>